This episode of Beyond the Films is brought to you by Mark, Nathan, and the fine folks at the Star Wars Report Second Airborne Division Podcast Network. That's right. This is all made possible by our blood, sweat, and fanboy tears. So with that... A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away... You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistle. Welcome to episode 229 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman, and rising with me like the light to my darkness, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! Hey, everybody. Rising up to shiver, basically. One of those things when you're recording a podcast, you gotta turn off the heater so the sound of the heater doesn't get picked up by a microphone. So if you hear me going, I'm not trying to do a Boss Nass impression, I'm just friggin' cold. <laughs> Same here, man. Same here. <laughs> but at least I know that, unlike Mark's studio, uh, at least from what I gathered before we recorded, um, if there are any glasses around with liquids in them, for me, I should feel safe to drink them. Yeah, yeah, mine, I, me and my daughter, we record Padawan's Perspective down here, and I think the last time we recorded was halfway through point on December, and yeah, those cups were still down here. I'm like, I'm not gonna test any of these out. This is gonna be death waiting to happen. (laughs) What incredible smell you've discovered, and botulism or something. Right? (laughs) Speaking of things we've discovered... Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we look back once again over the previous year of Star Wars publishing and all its epic greatness. This episode, we'll be focusing on the novels of 2017, with our next episode being comics and the one to follow being games, television, films, and, uh, you know, the other stuff. You know how we roll. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure... Beyond the Films. And may I say that that third episode that's going to be the uh, other stuff and films and whatnot, I will bet you money it's going to wind up being two separate ones, because that's the way the last couple of years have tended to go. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, even games has become more of a, a official episode in its own right. We have, you know, had more games and little games and handheld games and phone games. I mean, oh, man, that, this whole genre has really blown up in the last seven years. <laughs> and game controversies and microtransactions and petitions against EA. And but that's but that's a whole nother thing. So, yes, books for this year, I guess to start out with, it's finally appropriate, perhaps to talk about my book, you think? Yeah. In fact, like, uh, we should. We should totally dedicate at least, like, the next 15 minutes to it. Oh, I don't think we need that long. My goodness. What? What? I mean, it, the topic, it, it inspired an entire book. 
What are we talking about, Nate? For those that aren't on the up to know on the Beyonder Ponders and all that. So back in May, I put out a nonfiction Star Wars book, uh, unlicensed, unofficial, you know, fair use kind of thing, because this is something actually looking at Star Wars as opposed to being set in the Star Wars universe. Again, nonfiction, a book called A Saga on Home Video. A Fan's Guide to U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases. And basically, my passion, my interest in collecting Star Wars Home Video stuff that really sort of kicked into high gear about, I guess, about five years ago now, because we're now into 2018, uh, really got built up to the point where I pretty much have a complete or almost complete collection of U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases. And as I've been picking up other things from around the world, I've been doing a video series on YouTube called From the Star Wars Home Video Library. And among doing that, I've had a lot of people who are asking me, well, would you maybe write a book on this? This seems like something they could use a book or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I figured at the time, surely somebody had done that already. And it turns out that nobody had. There were collector's books that had incomplete lists of some home video stuff in there, usually just a picture and a product listing, and that was it. And then you had a couple of websites that were trying to list different releases over the years but don't have a lot of background on them, and many of those sites, in fact, I think all the ones that I know of, ended adding new information to their sites years ago. So it's kind of a, oh, there really isn't anyone doing this, so there's a new niche that I can jump headfirst into, and wound up uh, starting to write the book at the end of about, about 2016, I guess November of 2016-ish, and uh, ended up getting it out right in time for the 40th anniversary of A New Hope. So basically, it's about 300 pages with about 300 images from my own collection in it, but it's a narrative history of Star Wars on home video in the U.S. So it's the movies, it's droids, it's Ewoks, it's uh, the Clone Wars, it's Rebels, etc., etc., all that kind of stuff. But instead of it just being, here's a picture, and then here's a product listing that just tells you what it is so you can hunt it down, it's a narrative sort of talking through and and guiding us through the history and the ups and downs, the twists and turns of Star Wars home video releases in the U.S. with little sidebars here and there for things like unusual foreign releases that have some bearing on us or a breakdown of all the individual small changes made between different versions of, say, droids and Ewoks, but not the live-action films. That's been done to death elsewhere. I just give some quick opinions on the different versions and changes made to those, uh, and that sort of thing. So, sort of a home video guide, but also a history that you can just read and enjoy as a story in and of itself, or a narrative in and of itself, for those who are passionate about that sort of thing. Really down into the nitty-gritty granular stuff at times, but uh, yeah, yeah, very proud of it. I think it's it's something that I wasn't expecting to do at the time, when when I got into it, I realized I could really make it something special. I think it turned out very well. Uh, I'm guessing, give it a few years, maybe after episode 9, there'll be a second edition, because we've still had releases, of course, continuing after the book came out. We now have, uh, eventually we're going to have episode 8 stuff, and then eventually solo stuff, and episode 9 stuff, and more rebel stuff. But, uh, yeah, for now, the comprehensive way to check out U.S. Star Wars home video releases and kind of get a sense of uh, where it's all come from and giving some justification to all the money I've sunk into that collection over the years. <laughs> right? All that money. I mean, I, and, and for those of those collectors out there that are the completionists out there, they can feel your pain. They understand that struggle of got to get it all, the Pokemon syndrome of of collecting. Yes, um, just... And we'll talk about this when we talk about the home video releases and everything from this year. And I guess it's either, it'll be either part three or part four. It depends on if it winds up being four parts. But um, 
Yeah, just recently Walmart was like, yeah, we're going to put out some new reissues. And we're going to put out a complete saga over here and the original trilogy. And we're going to put out the prequel trilogy. How's about some DVD goodness of Rogue One and Force Awakens? Now, how about some Blu-rays for both of those two? We're going <laughs> to add in some exclusive DVDs with them so you feel like you got to get them. And we're not going to tell anybody. We're not going to announce it. It's not going to be on our website. It's not going to be anywhere. You just got to see it in the store. So, of course, somebody made <laughs> us aware of it. And my wife and I went out one night at about midnight and dropped about 200 bucks to get it all. Ooh. So, yes, um, that is why my Patreon exists in part, uh, to help defray the cost of stuff like that or books and comics and things like that that let me continue doing all the different video stuff, podcasts, um, all that stuff that I do out there. Um, but, yeah, that was definitely – that was like a uh, a gut punch when it came to that. But yeah. for a good cause because now I can say, see, honey – it's research for the next edition of the book in a few years. Mm -hmm. And I love the cover. I mean, you know, the, if you don't know, the cover is it's a VHS tape. And I, I actually got to have a hand in helping you design it because I was like, it needs to have the film. Like that was like the one part I was like my one suggestion. And then when I saw it, I was like, hey, put the film in there. Yes. Like that looks so great. I love it. Yeah, I was like, what? How is this supposed to? And I kind of had the idea of making it look like a tape. But I wasn't sure how much it should actually look like a VHS tape versus just sort of having the general shape. And no, he's like, mm -mm, mm -mm. these will look like this. I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so thanks to some, uh, some nudging here and there, managed to get that done. I believe Brian Snook helped out a little bit on it. Got some good suggestions from James, uh, bleh, James Wilder, excuse me. Uh, I, I always say, have trouble saying his name because I, I see it on Facebook as four different names all run together, but first and last is just James Wilder to finally get this thing done and, uh, self-published it through Amazon. So I'm able to have complete control over it, which allows me to look into future editions and things like that and uh, allows it me to be able to just sort of take a, a hand and say, you know what, if there's any errors, they are mine. It's not going through some kind of editor. It's not going through some other company. It's fine. It's all on me. And so far, it's gone pretty well. Man, so so that's pretty cool. You know, you got to be one of the many books we're covering this year. <laughs> yes, and I, uh, I, I highly um, recommend that one. Really, really. No no bias at all. Do you buy that? No, I don't buy it when, when Fox News or MSNBC says it either. Uh, anyway, so um, <laughs> getting into fiction, we've got actually quite a few books released this year. We've got adult novels coming from Del Rey. We've got books coming from Disney Lucasfilm Press, some of them being sort of younger reader stuff, some of them more aimed toward young adults. You might call them sort of the larger books. Quite a few the one section of books we won't really get into, though, is the stuff like the RPG books because, of course, that's more game stuff than anything else. So I guess if we start with the adult novels, one of the things that happened this year was we saw the end of one of the ongoing trilogies that we've been following, which is uh, the third edition or the third release in the Aftermath trilogy came out. That is Empire's End, which had the weird distinction of being in both hardback and eventually in paperback both this year. That is rare. Like, you don't usually see – usually it's almost a full year before the paperback comes out. I mean, granted – they have been shortening those windows, you know, the film, it would come out and it'd be so many months before it came out on Blu-ray and DVD, all that kind of stuff. But even that shrunk. I'm curious, like, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have The Last Jedi on Blu-ray, like around the same time Han Solo hits or just before, like just before, probably it's usually April. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess this is the evolution of our fandom uh, phase 15. Yes, we can spend <laughs> all that money on the new movie and all the money on the home video releases of the previous movie all at the same time. Oh, God. 
Well, you know, that's something I've actually, I, I've been clamoring for this. Um, back in Legends, I was always a paperback guy. That was, that was the heart of my paperback collection is Legends. I, I waited, I would get the hardcover, I would wait the year, I would buy it in paperback, and then I would do a contest or sell or trade off the hardcover. You know, that was, that was my jam. And I always felt like, you know, the release in the audiobook and the ebook the same day as the hardcover. Why not the paperback too? Well, just go for broke and see which one sells the most. Like, you know, I, I mean, on one hand, I get the whole marketing strategy of what they're doing there. Plus you add the, the uh, short stories and stuff like that into them later to add some additional value for those people that are like, Oh, you know, why do I really need this? Well, there's that short story you may or may not have. So there's that added value, but I'm still that opinion of just release it all the same day and go for it or release it all, you know, four months after the movie came out. Out because that seems to be the new thing. Yeah, I think that is all about this idea. We're going to put out the novelization long after the movie comes out so that if you want to re-experience the film, your only option is to go see it in the theater again and again and again, which I wound up doing to make sure I could summarize the thing. Uh, so Empire's in. <laughs> I felt like it was a fairly strong ending to that trilogy. Uh, it's certainly a far cry better than Aftermath 1, but that's, again, kind of valedictorian of summer school in a lot of ways. I'm glad to see that it wrapped up with setting up the Galactic Concordance and whatnot, kind of setting up the era to follow it. That said, I kind of hope Chuck Wendig doesn't return to Star Wars. I think his explosive social media personality and the firestorm that surrounded it and some of his interactions with people and the writing style of this book, especially the first book where the sentence fragments were much more pervasive, make me say, you know what? Great. He's got his trilogy. It's done. Awesome. See you later. Never the twain shall meet again, hopefully. You know, and I, I'm in the same boat. I really didn't dig his style. You know, I, I felt Empire's End, it, I didn't even feel it was as good as Life Debt. I felt like Life Debt was a better story. This one did a decent job kind of wrapping up stuff, but I, I don't feel like it delivered. You know, we're in an era now where, you know, there's going to be no major events in the books. And to a degree, this was the major event in the books. This is the Empire's End, so to speak. And yet it ended with so many damn questions. I, I was just as lost as I was before. And the styling thing is the major reason why I wouldn't want Chuck to come back. You know, his adding characters with agendas and stuff like that. That's small meat and potatoes. And don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of first person. Michael Stackpole's I Jedi loved it. Absolutely loved it to death. Karen Travis, what she did with first person stuff. Love that as well. This third person pros first person crap or whatever the hell he was doing that was first person yet not at all first person that was just so jarring that it became more about how do you get through this book than i read this book you know it was it was more man i'm, I'm having a hard time with this Is anyone else yeah we're all having yeah this, this is the worst problem ever man have you yeah bob what about you larry i'll say here like everybody was coming away with it unless of course you know you were friends with him on social media and then of course you absolutely love the book i mean granted that's an overization simplization whatever because that's the, just the nature of our fandom right now and i think chuck definitely was one of those that immediately people were polarized one way or the other uh, there were a few people that really fell in that. Oh, well, you know, I'm kind of digging in. I'll see where it goes from here. It's not quite my cup of tea. It was like, it was, you took a sip of that tea and you came away with either, a, oh, I like this or what the hell? This is not real great and it is not hot. What the heck is this? So for me, I'm in that same boat, man. I, I would be happy if they didn't invite Chuck back or if they did, 
they gave him a different directive. Sorry, man, no first person for you. Like, it's just, it was too controversial. We shouldn't be focused on your writing style. We should be focused on the writing. And that should speak for the style of what you're doing. And unfortunately, and I'm not a teacher and I didn't get good grades, but a lot of my friends that are teachers were screaming, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. So... I take that into consideration. Now, I'm sure there are people out there that are going to bash me for that. But you know what? That's just my opinion. So that's all. That's like my opinion, man. It's not worth much. <laughs> the book, period. The way it was written, yeah. <laughs> period. Tended to have sentence fragments, period. Yes, exactly like that. But hopefully if he does come back, it'll be more like something we got with the Force Awakens comic adaptation where it's just a straight up story. And maybe he's leaving um, his own personal politics out of it as well. Getting into the next one, speaking of people who have their own agendas, so to speak, we have Thrawn, uh, the long-awaited return of Thrawn in canon, the character so beloved in Legends, tying into, of course, his appearance in Rebels. This, of course, was Timothy Zahn back again doing Thrawn. And we talked about it on the show. I think this one went pretty well. It's very much sort of those one of those character stories again. It's less about the events and more about the evolution of the personality of the individual that it's focused on. But it had some nice, you know, twists and turns here and there. It's made for a good buildup of Thrawn leading into Rebels and also Arhinda Price, who we didn't know a whole lot about at the time. My only question with Thrawn now is, now that it's also getting a comic adaptation as well, is looking at it... And looking at how its timing worked, because it basically gives you some very strict, specific timing of things that are happening right up until a point where there's a time jump of an unspecified length that then leads directly into Rebels. So there's a time jump that leaves us kind of wondering when exactly the earlier stuff takes place, but we know when it is in relation to itself, like a month here, a month there, or whatever. Um, Kind of makes me wonder, with a Thrawn sequel coming soon, whether that's going to be slapped into that time jump? Or how exactly they're going to be doing that, because it seems like most of his career with the Empire leading up to Rebels has, in many cases, it's already a story that's been told. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from there. But I thought this was a, a solid one, though this, I guess, is a good time to point out that as we go through these hardbacks, most of them had some type of Barnes & Noble exclusive, usually with a pack-in poster or something. But this is one that had other exclusives as well, because you also wound up having the one, of course, from Celebration that was so hard to get your hands on. They got me so many death glares picking up several copies for friends of mine while I was there. So Thrawn is probably the poster child at this point for multiple covers of books, although really Phasma, I think, had more additions than Thrawn did. It's just that Thrawn, because of the Celebration copy, is the one that gets all the attention and all the ire for that. Well, see, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking about that with Empire's End. Like, you know, we only had the one cover for that, I believe. I don't think there was any other covers. And Thrawn, like a few other books, they did start to see that. But with Thrawn, like, I felt like that one was justified. Like, that felt like every bit as important as Heir to the Empire getting a 25th anniversary reprint or something along those lines. Like, you know, I don't know, Timothy Zahn bringing in Thrawn of all characters. Like, that was such a momentous moment for our fandom. You know, that was one of those aspects like, and I will keep this spoiler free as best I can for The Last Jedi, when a certain character showed up that I was like, man, I really wish I would have saw that character in Legends. Like, just, I don't know, for me, like, that that was one of those things that it needed something a little bit more. So to hear that Phasma actually may have more covers, like, I don't like to see that being a trend. Like, I think they should save it for books that are going to be more monumental or a larger drop in the pond, so to speak. 
Yeah, and I should note here that with the, with Thrawn, it actually was variant covers, like variant dust jackets. Usually, it's not a variant dust jacket. The book looks exactly the same from the outside. It's usually some little extra poster or something thrown into the the first pages, or Books a Million will have an edition that has a, a signature page on it. But yeah, it's it was a momentous kind of thing, but it is starting this this trend of these um, alternate dust jackets and such rather than just the pack in things, which continued in. Our next novel on the list, which was Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad. I would say that this is probably my favorite novel of the year as far as the Del Rey novels go. Uh, introducing us to Inferno Squad, giving us the background of those characters that, of course, we meet in the game, making us care about them. Uh, some good emotional moments that now have emotional moments that are similar that echo within the game. I thought that that was a pretty good novel, but again... A novel that had different versions. You had a signed copy you could get. You had the copy that had the, the, the little poster thing from books or from Barnes and Noble. But then you also had a New York Comic Con, I think it was, or San Diego Comic Con. One of the Comic Con's exclusive version, I think it was San Diego actually, um, of Inferno Squad that thankfully Barrett was able to snag for me. And when the game came out, Target got another exclusive dust jacket version of the book. Uh, so Inferno Squad, another one with a lot of different variants out there, but I would say probably a highlight from this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I got at the end of this episode, I've got a top three. So you mentioned your first one, so keep that in mind as we go, because uh, when we get done with all these, I want to do a top three. But I'm in the same boat. I really I enjoyed this one. You know, I think one of the things you'll hear me most in this next oh two years since or three years since Disney acquired Star Wars, the one thing I've been complaining the most is the quality of the stories in the books and comics. I, I, I almost don't even say it's gone down from what it was at Legends, but it seems like it's on par with the most subpar Legends was. I feel like we're getting a lot of backstory, a lot of filler, a lot of a fluff with little circumstance. Whereas Inferno Squad, I dug this one, man. I really gobbled this one up. I really enjoyed the way that it, it, it presented things. Uh, and I, I finally got the game, so I'm, I'm finally playing the story mode on that and stuff. And I got the exclusive character that came from uh, GameStop. And it made me think about something, because in this book, there's a certain person that's no longer there for the game. And it made me kind of wonder, you know, because you see that GameStop figure, and the GameStop figure is not the three characters that you see in Inferno Squad in the game. Not a one. It's not Aiden. It's not the two boys. So... I was always like, okay, so is is this supposed to be the player character? But no, you play as Iden Versio. So I'm like, why in the hell do we have this character that's not even part of Inferno Squadron? Is this supposed to be Sin? Is this supposed to be her from the book? Like, I th- that that like threw me off. But when it comes to this book, though, overall, I absolutely love the way that it sets up and just delivers us into the game. This is definitely something that the first Battlefront game failed at horribly. Now, granted, that's more probably due to the fact that the game didn't have a campaign story mode, so it really had nothing to tie into. Like, they might have been able to tie more into, like, the cutscenes and stuff with the first game, with the first book. But I also like the fact that even though this is the second Battlefront book, it's kind of a prequel in a sense. In the sense of where it falls in the timeline, it comes before that. But getting back to those covers real quick, one thing I wanted to ask you about that, with the Thrawn covers, one of the things that was major about that was that there were some that the actual physical cover was different. The inside of that cover, the indentations, like it looked like Thrawn. Now with these and like the Phasma ones, those are just dust jackets, right? Same with the, uh, from a certain point of view, these are all just, the differences are dust jackets and some little outer trampings. Or is it like with the Thrawn one where there's like a total indention of his uniform as well as a color scheme change? Like there's a side of me where I'm like, as long as they're making changes to the cover, I feel like that's okay. But when they're just slapping a different dust jacket on it, that to me 
me feels like it's more of a, a cash grab as, as fans would call it. I mean, where do you f- sit on that fence? Like, do you find that the multiple covers in itself is a cash grab or, or like me, does it have to have subtle variations in the physical cover as well as the dust jacket to escape the cash grab classification? Well, there haven't been a lot that had different books on the inside. I think that was the case, if I remember correctly, for Thrawn Inferno Squad uh, from San Diego Comic-Con in the latter's case, and then the New York Comic-Con version from a certain point of view. But otherwise, it's usually just that they either have a different dust jacket, or they have a dust jacket that has a little sticker on it saying it's exclusive somehow, and then you look inside, and in the first couple pages, there's either a pack-in poster, or there's a separate special page for a signed copy that Books a Million does. And I would argue that in all of these cases, I mean, it's all a cash grab, right? It's all an attempt to try to get you to buy whichever one stands out to you, or to buy it again if it's a new copy at a convention that came out after you've already probably bought a copy at retail on the launch day. But that said, I think it comes down to this question of, I think it's less a matter of, is it a cash grab? Because they're all cash grabs, right? It's all about making a profit. But it's the balancing of sort of how many is too much? At what point are we at saturation? Because I think about Marvel. Marvel could do a comic with two or three variants, and I'm not sure anybody would gripe. Marvel does Star Wars number one with over a hundred variants? Screw you, that's too damn many, right? Um, the immediate response is, that is overboard, that is way too expensive for a collector to actually, you know, go Pokemon, collect them all. Here, we have something a little bit different because there's not nearly as many variants of the novels as there are for most issues of a given comic, but they're also, you know, about 10 times the cost of a comic. You know, we're talking about something that's, you know, in the upper 20s or into the $30 plus range rather than something that's, you know, five bucks or less, um, usually more around three. So in that sense, I think we got to a point, especially with Phasma, where it wasn't differences on the outside, it was just a difference in which of the three posters was on the inside, plus there was a signed copy, etc. And it was all just the same dust jacket that you got to wonder, is the goal to have collectors collect them all, or is it just to provide different retailers with an incentive to go to that store when you buy the one copy you're going to buy? If it's just giving incentives for you to go buy one copy and just giving you options to choose from, fine, that's great. For collectors, or if the goal is for collectors to collect them all, it really kind of sucks. Because you're winding up buying multiple copies of the same novels, which are not only more expensive than the comics, they're also going to be more of a space sucker when you try to put them into your collection later. I'm filling up my canon novel shelves way faster than I ever thought I was going to because of how many multiple copy books I've got because of just this type of variance. But that's not going to be the norm, right? Most people are going to go for just whichever one stands out to them or whichever happens to be the most convenient for them to buy when they're out or when they're shopping online. And who cares about the little poster that's on the inside because that's not the story. So I don't know. I mean, I would hope that they would stop it soon. And I think that the convention ones are the toughest one because those, you know, it's kind of neat to be able to get something special because you were at the convention. But at the same time, depending on how many they make and how available they make it at the convention, the prices for those soar like mad on eBay immediately after the fact. Especially in situations where you've got, for instance, the Thrawn one, you could get signed while you were there. Uh, a certain, from a certain point of view, you could get signed while you were there. But you also had, in the case of the Inferno Squad copy, it was pre-signed. So not only is it a signed copy, 
You didn't have to go get it signed at the convention. It was already signed when you got it. So the price shoots through the roof, just like with Thrawn, making it difficult for those who don't attend the convention to be able to get. But that goes back to the same argument you see a lot of times about, you know, convention exclusive anything. You know, it was an exclusive convention item, and it's not available elsewhere online afterwards for the retail price you had for it there, and it's only available on places like eBay. Of course it's going to be expensive, and is that fair or not to collectors who can't travel, can't do whatever, who have jobs and lives and things like that? That's going to be an ongoing argument probably forever. So I don't, I doubt we're going to solve it here. Yeah. No, and, and I'm, I'm in that same boat. I, I like the idea of the exclusives at the cons and stuff. Uh, it's, it's the Target exclusive, the Walmart exclusive and all that where I'm just like, I don't, I, I, that's the kind of exclusive I don't enjoy because I live in a city where, you know, we've got the super Walmart, we've got Fred Myers, uh, you know, we do not have a Target. We do not have a Toys R Us. So if I got to go get the Toys R Us exclusive or the Target exclusive, I could do the GameStop one. I could do the Walmart one. But those other ones, I got to travel 37 miles to get to and, and hope that they're there that day. So that makes collecting a pain in the butt. It helps if the websites are actually on the ball. Like when it came to the Phasma copy to be able to get the one with the exclusive stuff, say for Walmart, I had to go to Walmart because the Walmart website offers absolutely no detail letting you know that this is a special version exclusive to their store. Whereas, say, when Barnes & Noble or Books A Million has an exclusive version or, of something, they're going to have that right there on their website telling you that it's exclusive and it's easy to get. What I am more concerned about is things with the novels, like what wound up happening with the home video releases that I mentioned earlier that we dropped the 200 bucks on that were at Walmart in December of 17. Because those still, at this point, into January, are not anywhere on Walmart's website. They were announced nowhere. The first many people heard about it, aside from seeing it in the store, was when I put up the video covering it for From the Star Wars Home Video Library, and then a bunch of the collectors that I know were like, oh, crap, and ran out to try to get them at their Walmarts. By which time, you know, a couple days later, some of them had already sold out. Turns out some Walmarts didn't get any of them to put out on the shelves anyway. Just kind of a mess. Thankfully, the novels, usually if there's going to be an exclusive, they will announce it, and about half the time, depending on what store it is, you'll be able to go on the website and just order the exclusive one you want and know it's going to be exclusive. Otherwise, you're betting on eBay pretty much the entire way. Speaking of that novel that had a ton of variants, and my opinion didn't deserve it, but I'm pretty down on this particular book myself, we had Phasma get released this year. The backstory of the chrome-plated soldier that we meet, of course, in The Force Awakens, who we now have also seen in The Last Jedi. Gotta say, for me, Phasma was one of the low points, if not the low point, for the uh, Del Rey novels this year. Probably the low point, because from a certain point of view, it was at least a little bit mixed. I'm just not into the whole Mad Max meets Lord of the Flies meets Star Wars type of thing. For someone who's into that, it would have been a great book, probably. But for me, it did absolutely nothing for me. And I was hoping that something out of that book would justify its existence by tying into what we see of Phasma in Last Jedi. And no. I mean, I knew she was more of like a psychopath... So whenever she was fighting Finn, I was like, dude, dude, she's freaking crazy. She makes Afra look sane. <laughs> but other than that, there was really nothing to that novel that gave me any more of a feeling about anything that Phasma does in the films at all. Um, so for me, Phasma fell flat. But hey, at least I've got a bunch of copies of it. 
Ooh, yeah. Is that insult to injury? I don't know. See, for me, I, I kind of wonder, would Phasma, this book, would it have done better if this would have been part of the journey to the Force Awakens? Uh, you know, I feel like that's where it should have been. Give us this book two years ago. Give yourself more time to sell it because honestly, spoiler alert, I don't think this book is going to sell much after people watch that movie. I mean, that, to me, that is getting back to that heart of that issue about these are just backstory fluffer pieces. And that's exactly what this is. Oh, hey, by the way, you know, we've got we got a story. You know, one of the things in Legends when they killed off Anakin Solo and later Mara Jade Skywalker, one of the things that gave me solace was like, well, they could always go back and write stories about their adventures when they were earlier on and stuff. Like that was something I was praying for with Legends. That's not something I was expecting them to use as a formula so early on characters that are basically the Boba Fett's of their time. Now, granted, Boba Fett and Legends went on to have a hell of a backstory, but canon's a different beast. He didn't in canon, so my reference still stands. Like, this is the Boba Fett of canon. Like, just as pointless as ever. And so, in that regard, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I, I don't find this book a, a high point. I'm not also a fan of the Mad Max, Lord of the Rings, or Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Flies style. Maybe if it was Lord of the Rings, maybe I'd, I'd got more down on the vibe or something. But, I don't know. I, again, for me, you know, that lead up to me, I want it to feel important. And so far, any book that's got the title Journey 2 doesn't feel like it's journeying anywhere. It feels like a journey to Disney's wallet <laughs> that's really what it feels like i mean i i want something like that to be like you're saying when you're watching the movie i to feel some payoff you know uh you know we have some things with admiral or vice admiral holdo where you know her character was mentioned in one of the books we're going to cover here in a minute and at least like you had that aspect but i aside from the aspect like you knew she was crazy you know there really wasn't much that this did for us i i don't know so for me I find that to be more of a, a flop. Like I, I find it a complete f- fluffer and I, I'm not a fan of fluffer things, you know? I mean, just, yeah, no, not, not, not too happy. And I, unfortunately for me, while I kind of feel like the next book we're going to cover is also a fluffer, I feel like at least it's premise, the way it was out of universe delivered. I think that that was a win. Phasma, not so much. Phasma got the conch, baby. Bad Lord of the Flies <laughs> reference. Yes, the next one we're taking a look at here is from a certain point of view. Now, this is another one that had a convention exclusive, this time at New York Comic Con. This was a book created for charity, so that all proceeds would go to charity. But it has the weird distinction of being a book that's basically a bunch of short stories that take place over the span of A New Hope. From the perspective, basically, of future historians trying to piece together the story of what really happened based on all these different takes on those events, even to the point of those historians arguing over what the opening crawl of A New Hope should say. In that sense, it was an interesting way of going about it. And, of course, it's left in sort of a, well, you know, it's all from a certain point of view. Some things that are more exaggerated, maybe it's not quite true. It sort of puts it into, if this was the old Legends continuity, it sort of gives some of it a sense of S canon rather than C canon, right? Something that could be true and is probably true, but there may be some variations on it. Like Tales, before they gave us the definitive Infinities logo with the story. <laughs> exactly! But lots and lots of stories, 40 stories in this book. So it's hard to really look at the book as a whole because there are certain stories that will stand out and other ones that are just 
completely forgettable. So we had some solid stories. I would say that things like uh, the spirit of Qui-Gon showing up there is awesome, uh, getting some more backstory for that. Some of the stories that we got with the pilots near the end of the film, those are really quite good, although it took me out of it because there seemed to be no coordination because of all the different stories about the Battle of Yavin and the pilots in it. It seems like they couldn't decide and keep consistent between stories Was there a small number of pilots up there because they had a lot of extra pilots but no X-Wings for them? Or was it that there were X-Wings sitting there with no pilots because there weren't enough pilots for them? And hey, is this pilot actually in the battle or were they not lucky enough to get an X-Wing so they're actually watching from the command center? They had pilots in multiple places at once and just kind of screwed up the continuity of the Battle of Yavin because they did not coordinate between those stories the way that they should have. But the stories in themselves in a vacuum, just looking at one at a time, turned out fairly well. But this is a book where the highs were high and the lows were... The lows made the Phasma novel look like I was reading the Thrawn trilogy. (laughs) Because the lows were god-awful. Like, do we really need a story where the Dianoga is some type of force religious being or something that gives an explanation for why it pulled Luke underwater because it was some type of baptism thing and some kind of weird shade or energy or soul version of Luke kind of sloughs off when he's underwater and I guess maybe somehow it's supposed to make him more prepared for, you know, something? That type of story. And then we got the story of basically finding out that TK-421, who was not at his post, that TK-421 is basically whoring himself to try to sleep his way to the top to get a promotion off the Death Star, and is doing so with one of the upper-tier officers in the Death Star. Now, you can immediately draw the conclusion from that, wait a second, if the upper officers are men, TK-421 is male, aha, it's a gay story. Okay, who gives a crap if it's a gay story or a straight story? Should a story of someone whoring their way to the top, I'm going to screw my way into a promotion? Is that the kind of story we need to celebrate A New Hope? Is that what Star Wars has become by 40 years? So you've got stories that are just freaking terrible (laughs) in that book, but you also have some that are really quite good and make you look at scenes in the movie a little bit differently. So it's one of those that if I could parcel it out, I could say, you know, here's some really good stories and here's some really god-awful stories, but it's all one book, which makes it very, very difficult to recommend. I would almost say if you're going to read from a certain point of view, go into it expecting that for every high, there's going to be a very low low. Or to put it another way, for every time you're sitting there smiling in the glow of, man, that was an awesome story, expect to be kicked in the crotch a few times. <laughs> so I like the aspect that this was a charity. Like that, for me, first and foremost, I think this made this a special book. I'm with you in the aspect, though, that because of the way it was handled and the whole tongue-in-cheek of a certain point of view, that turned me off. I really... I. Like, I can accept the stories for what they are because they don't quite fit in and line up. So I look at this as an infinities first. And if it lines up, then maybe I'll adopt it. But for the most part, I see this as existing outside of my continuity. I can enjoy the book for that. But I hate the book because of that. I don't think that we should be screwing around with things that do yet don't exist in continuity. When we're talking about the coordination of that book and that story and stuff, you know, let's consider that, quote, under Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy's direction, the company for the first time ever has formed a story group to oversee and coordinate all Star Wars creative development, unquote. They can't even do it in one book. We can't do it in a lot of things like the story group. I have less faith in the story group 
as we go along. Like, so this to me is like a, a glaring example of where they may have wanted to pay a little more attention to some of the stuff going on. You know, we got Pablo talking about the films or, you know, more canon than the books and other stuff. So I'm like, you know, there's, there's so much of this book that I feel like crumbles those walls of it's all one big happy family. It's all one big story. And if we're trying to make it all work in the first place, then shouldn't the Lego Freemaker stuff really be more canon than canon adjacent? The fact that we have the word canon adjacent now and the fact that this book kind of falls into that canon adjacent heading for so often just irritates the hell out of me. So, there, you know, I'm conflicted on that regard when it comes to this book. But I, I again, getting back to it being a charity and them having so many different writers and stuff, I thought it was a really cool and bold attempt. I like that. Uh, I like the fact that it felt very much, in a sense, like the Tales of stuff. I didn't think it was going to basically, in the same regard as the Tales of books, be located around one event, but it did. It was a new hope, you know, all around the Yavin battle, basically. So I thought that was kind of an interesting take. I mean, it gave me hope. Maybe we'll see more of those. But at the same time, you know me, I'm a big Legends fan. I've always wanted to see more Tales of Legends and that kind of stuff. And the fact that they didn't just call this a Tales of book tells me that they're being smart. They don't want to give us Legends fans some hope. Like, you know, they're avoiding that ball like as, as much as they can. So, yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted. Like, this one had potential to be really good. And yet I felt like the delivery was less than it could have been. So, yeah, I'm conflicted for sure. I I wouldn't put this one up there as one of my shining examples of good storytelling for 2017, but it's definitely an interesting project, to say the least. Interesting. It's kind of like saying, wow, you've got a great personality. <laughs> it's my way of saying I can't think of anything else about you that is good, but you have a great personality. Or, uh, how you doing? Do I remember your name? Hey, you, how you doing, guy buddy anyway <laughs> so speaking of anthologies we had one that was kind of an anthology released right here recently which is kento bite which is sort of an odd book and it's basically four novellas instead of being four short stories or separate full-blown novels and it takes kind of a tales of perspective towards some of the characters that we meet usually in the background on kento bite in doing so it's different than a Tales of book in that it doesn't necessarily intersect in a clear way with the film itself. Like, you don't have instances where you can easily spot, okay, here's what's happening in this scene with this character. I see it in the movie, now I also see it in the book. And that's sort of interweaving, but... The timing of certain references, like to the fact that Starkiller Base or that Hosnian Prime was destroyed and that sort of thing, being commented upon suggests it must be happening during the presence of a, some certain characters there at the bar, suggests it has to probably be during the course of The Last Jedi. But otherwise, it's four completely independent stories with characters we've never met before outside of seeing them in the background on screen or seeing them in, like, the visual dictionary or something like that. So it really was going to take a lot to get us into these characters. Because you take something like Tales from Jabba's Palace, uh, Tales from the Most Icy Cantina, Tales of the Bounty Hunters, those anthologies, we had already had years to get used to those characters and to see them on screen, even in their bit roles, that we were stoked to get some background on them for the first time, really, when we got those. But this is a book that came out uh, right with the movie, pretty much, which meant that we didn't really have a situation in which we had seen these characters on screen and been wondering about them, and now we got their background. And I would say that of the four stories, they're all decent. I wouldn't say any of them knock it out of the ballpark, but the strongest is John Jackson Miller's story, which is the last in the book, which focuses on a, a gambler and some weird little alien dudes who are 
gamblers as well who have this weird, unique relationship with luck and the force and whatnot, depending on who's together and that sort of thing. I mean, it's for kind of a cool type of tale for that last one. I mean, they're all decent. And I would say that they're all on par with some of the B-level stuff in from a certain point of view. But because we don't have that immediate emotional attachment to the characters, I don't know that any of them rise to the A-level of something like from a certain point of view's encounter between, say, Obi-Wan and the ghost of Qui-Gon. But fairly decent. I would certainly recommend picking up Canto Bite, which is about characters we know nothing about before reading Phasma, which is about a character we were supposed to care about. See, I was wondering where you're going with that. Because <laughs> for me, I think this one suffers the same problem Phasma had, where I, I don't know if it was smart of them to put it out when they did, or if they should have gave it more time, or if they should have waited till after the movie. Because like, I, this is another book that I feel like there's no relevancy for it. I feel like this is just a, it's just there. John Jackson Miller's, his is definitely the strongest story, like you say, but I just get back to, they're, they're not characters that we really see. And if we do see them, we don't, I don't think we ever realized that it's them. Uh, you know, it's not like we have one of these stories and it happens to be about the master hacker, you know, like, like, which to me, like, that would have made more sense. Like, so I don't know. Like, for me, I think that gets back to the heart of what I'm having issue when it comes to the books and comics in general is that, that lack of connectivity. Like, I have no reason to care about these characters. Or there was just a commotion because it looks like a father just ran through the casino. <laughs> you know, even connecting it to the events of the film happening in the background off screen that they either hear or somehow notice or mention would have felt more connected. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I think for me, I mean, that's, that's where I'm at. Like I, I want the, you know, the journey too to feel like it's leading up to. And I want these books that I want some more connectivity. And I get that, you know, we've had to push the, the novelization of this one out three months. And this is a safer book because of the way that they played it. So, I mean, I understand that. But if this is going to be the recipe going forward every single year, we're going to put out a book that has no connection to anything. It's just filler so we can make some money. I'm going to stop buying them. I, granted, I didn't buy this one. It was sent to me as a review copy, but you know, I, I like the fact that we've got some books out there that are the different covers and stuff. I got a couple of the different versions of Thrawn and stuff. Like, so, you know, there are stories that I'd be willing to spend more money on just to get another version of the book. But when we're spending money on books that it feels like it's not adding any value to the IP, I mean, it's just like that to me, I think is the, the problem that we have got to address when it comes to these books and these comics, or we're just going to have mediocre stories and and it's always going to be films first. And I guess I just need to swallow that pill and realize it's always going to be films first. And this stuff's just always going to be second rate to it. And I think that sucks because there have been some really good books that took itself way seriously under the old regime that I would love to see Stover come in and do something with, you know, like I love to see Stover get a hold of some of these things and just flesh out some backstory, you know, give him uh, the Bendu and let him tell us the backstory of the Bendu or something like that, you know, like give us something that matters. And I, I guess that's the thing. Like when this book came out, I was hoping it was going to matter. And I quickly, once I got in the first story, I had a feeling like this is all going to be secondary side characters, which, you know, I was like, all right, I can get into that. And, and John Jackson Miller stuff was interesting because it brought some, you know, made me think about the philosophy of the force and how the force worked. I like, I like that. But overall, like it was just there. Like it, it almost felt like it was something I needed to get out of the way so I could watch the movie and, and look for things that connected. And by the time it was all said and done, I felt like it was more a waste of my time than anything else. And that kind of sucks. Like, I shouldn't feel like reading these books are a waste of my time. And granted, I don't. I don't always feel that way. But 
a lot of what's coming out right now does. And it does make me question, you know, do we need to have as many of these books coming out? I get we only have so many of these books on the docket, so we got to make sure that they're all canon because we only have so many. But if this is what you're going to give us for all this, give us a Legends book, one or two. Save your canon stories. Make them worth something. Like, I... I don't know. Get, you know, don't put out as much if this is it. I want substance. I want quality, not quantity. And that's something we have been complaining about for a long time as Star Wars fans, you know, legends. The issue is there's too many of these and they're not all good. Well, we're following that same recipe. I feel like, you know, I'm on a train, the brakes out and there's a brick wall coming up. I know it's, you know, in 25 miles, but. The bottom line is nobody seems to be caring about the fact that there's a brick wall 25 miles ahead and we're not slowing down and we still have no brakes. I'll probably wrap up my thoughts in relation to, to the whole thing of quality versus quantity as we get towards the end of the episode, probably. The two things that stand out right now about Canto Bite that popped into my head, uh, two things to think about as you go into Canto Bite. Number one is, did you notice that the main character, if you actually figure out who that is and look in the visual dictionary or look in the special photo pages that are added to the Barnes & Noble copy of the book, did you notice that the main character in the first story in Canto Bite is running around Canto Bite buck-necked the entire time? No, I missed that part. <laughs> He's a buck-necked little one-eyed little pink alien dude. It's kind of creepy. So visually picturing that is a little bit crazy. I would say also, though, that the, the name Canto Bite has given me a lot of trouble. I keep wanting to say Canto Bright, but at least all I'm thinking is Canto Bright, because I had someone describe this book to me the other day, and in saying it out loud... I guess they thought that H was supposed to make a huh sound because they told, he asked me if I had read Canto Bigot. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I haven't read Canto Bigot, but you know what? Given 2017 and the craziness, I would not have been surprised to see a book called Canto Bigot. But thankfully, it was Canto Bite. <laughs> Speaking of other books coming out from Del Rey, not much left. For 2017 to look at, we did, alongside the paperback reprint of uh, Empire's End, also get the paperback reprints of Life Debt, Rogue One, and Catalyst. Uh, Rogue One and Empire's End did not have little short stories from Insider or anything collected into them, but Life Debt does have Blade Squadron Kuat, and Catalyst does have Voice of the Empire, if you're looking for those. And as sort of an odd thing, but not as odd when you think about the fact that there's a solo movie coming up uh, in just a matter of months here... The Han Solo Trilogy, the old Brian Daly Han Solo Trilogy, the Legends Han Solo Trilogy, you know, from the 70s, got a uh, hardback omnibus reprint uh, exclusive to Barnes & Noble this year. So if you're looking for that one, uh, there is yet another version of that book out uh, that has been reprinted many a time over the years. Which is nice. I mean, I like the fact that those older, harder-to-find-in-print books are getting the reprints because, you know, they did say they continue to put out Legends novels as long as there was demand. As long as Han Solo at Star's End is still talking about the Star's End prison and not the fact that the Han Solo movie is going to end the careers of any of the stars in it, then we'll be fine. <laughs> Han Solo at Star's End. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, your career is over. Um, all right. The other big publisher, of course, of Star Wars books outside of Del Rey is Disney Lucasfilm Press. And they're going to have several that show up in our young reader books of note. But also, they do put out these sort of larger ones that are, they're sort of young adult books, but it's more just like, they're just sort of treading on the adult novel ground, but it's by Disney Lucasfilm Press, and they're longer books. It's hard to think of them as kids' books or even teen books per se. They're generally fairly solid. Uh, these are books like Lost Stars or Ahsoka, which we saw previously, but which got paperback reprints this year, both of them. But we had three big ones from Disney Lucasfilm Press this year. We had Rebel Rising, 
Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and Legends of Luke Skywalker. Mark, I handled the first take on all the Del Rays. Why don't you give us your first take on our Disney Lucasfilm presses? So how about Rebel Rising? So Rebel Rising is, that's one of my high points. I really enjoyed that book a lot. I think that it tied in to not just Catalyst, but Rogue One in ways that I, that's what I'm hoping for, you know? And I want to say in that regard, Disney, they're really knocking it out of the park when it comes to their press. Like they're really going that extra mile in what I like about a story at that connectivity. They're not going overboard. They're definitely giving us just enough. Uh, I like the fact that, you know, like I was saying before, when it came to Anakin Solo, Mara Jade, sometimes there's characters that die. You want to know about their backstory. Bam, here comes Rebel Rising. We get to know everything there is to know about Jyn or so from the moment she gets picked up from Saw Gerrera till the moment we see her getting escaped from the uh, prison. So, I, I thought that was just a wonderful ride. You know, there are other books out there, even in Legends, like with Darth Maul and stuff, where I had hoped we'd had something similar like this and they went a different direction. So this one for me was definitely a high point. I definitely enjoyed the way it was written. So yeah, all the way around, I really enjoyed this book. Yeah, this is also going to be one of my top ones for the year. I would actually put Rebel Rising right there up against Inferno Squad as possibly my favorite Star Wars book of this year. I mean, it was a really good ride. Uh, and just like you were saying, it's basically the entire story, in essence, of Jin going from the end of that flashback part at the beginning of Rogue One, or before the time jump, whatever you want to call it, to getting her where she needs to be for the bulk of Rogue One. From kid actor to adult actor, basically. And it did so in a way that led to some interesting questions about the morality of warfare, the morality of the Galactic Civil War, its fight, the methods of both sides, which is also something that Inferno Squad delved into as well, which made them very nice companion pieces. And there's even a character from the one that shows up in the other as a nice bit of connective tissue there. So yeah, Rebel Rising definitely won. I'm giving the thumbs up, too, as a recommendation for this year. Not quite as strong, but still fairly strong, I think, was Leia Princess of Alderaan. What about that one, Mark? That one, I'm still in the middle of that one. I'm actually enjoying it quite a bit. I like the fact that it's a Leia take. Uh, we get to learn about how she discovers that her mom and dad are working with the Rebellion. The way that that's presented, it's it turned out so far. I'm enjoying the heck out of it. Like I said, I'm only about halfway in, so I don't know where we go from that point. But so far, I'm I'm enjoying this. Probably more so than I anticipated when this one was first announced. It was kind of like the Han Solo film of all the films coming out. I was kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever. But once I got it and I started getting into it, like we start learning about Antilles and stuff and we see about Leia and how she's, you know, coming into her own power and how her parents are ignoring her and she's starting to feel that. Like I, to me, I like the inner personal struggle of Leia. Like I thought that was a really cool take. And so for me, that was definitely a win. Again, I, I just can't, I think Disney's, their press is doing a great job when it comes to these books. I also love the covers and stuff of these books. You know, I mean, the Leia one, especially you open it up, it's all red. It's got the rebel crest on the inside of it. Like I, they're smaller than the regular adult books, but yet they feel just as relevant. I don't feel like they're as young adult as they seem to be marketed as. They definitely feel like they are every bit as relevant as any Delray book that's ever come out. And I almost wonder if down the road, Delray may find themselves in trouble because these books are doing so well. They're also the books you're talking about, the, the sort of leaning toward the adult content. I would also say that Rebel Rising, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and Lost Stars are so, for, so, for, so far 
um, the Star Wars books that have the most explicit references to sex in them, which is something you would expect more from the adult novels than the younger ones. But what do I know? You know, this is the generation that grew up on Twilight or, you know, something. <laughs> yeah, I think this was a pretty good one. I don't think it was quite as good as Rebel Rising because I, I didn't feel like I needed to know as much about Leia. I didn't feel like Leia had as much room and and tragedy to grow through. So it was kind of one where it just, it, it didn't grab me as much as Rebel Rising, but still very interesting to see her development. The one misstep or problem that I have with Leia, Princess of Alderaan, is the fact that Amelin Holdo is introduced and is such an interesting, quirky, goofy character. I mean, she's freaking Luna Lovegood, basically, of Star Wars. She is a little nutty. She's a little off. But then we get none of that. Nada. Zip. Zero. Zilch in The Last Jedi, to the point where they could have been completely different characters. So to set her up here is so interesting, and then have none of that come across on the screen in Laura Dern's performance, or the way that the character was written for the film by Ryan Johnson, was a real big letdown. But that's not necessarily a problem with the book. That's an issue with the coordination. Right, right. That's the director, because Story Group doesn't tell the directors what to do. They just tell the people in the books what to do. So, you know. And even then, <laughs> only barely. Even then, only barely. It's sort of do your own thing, and if there's something we need to talk about, we'll talk about it. Now, I would agree with you that Disney Lucasfilm Press has been knocking it out of the park, especially with these supposed young adult books, so much more often than Del Rey has managed to do in the new canon. I mean, pretty much straight on through, starting with Lost Stars, they've been rocking it. But every everybody who comes up and's hitting Grand Slams is bound to strike out maybe once. And in this case, maybe they struck out in a way that caused the bat to go into the face of the catcher behind them and leave it a bloody ruin with a bunch of me uh, metal or wooden splinters sticking out of the catcher's face. <laughs> because the other one that came out this year for Disney Lucasfilm Press is The Legends of Luke Skywalker. You can pretty much guess what my opinion of this book is going to be by that lead up. But let's start with Mark again. Have you read Legends of Luke Skywalker? And if so, what'd you think of it? So I actually haven't. I almost bought it for Christmas. I saw it on the shelf. But at that point, Riley had said, oh, they sent me one. And I was like, well, they haven't sent me one. He said, well, I'll send it to you. I've already finished it. So I'm waiting for it to come. Uh, so I haven't, but what I've heard about this book sounds like it's more in league with, from a certain point of view, in the aspect of its canon adjacentness, which you know how that drives me nuts. So on one hand, I'm excited for this. And on the other hand, I'm a little trepidatious. I know there's something about a flea, uh, and I believe the flea is no good. So I'm like, oh, I don't know where we're going to go with this. On one hand, I'm so excited because I'm like, this is, you know, the legends of Luke Skywalker. Like this is the Luke Skywalker that everyone thought they were going to be getting in, you know, the last Jedi. So I don't know if I will like this or not, because I don't know where they're going with it and it sounds like the direction of how they put this together the premise of it is the failing feature now if this is disney press's way of basically doing like a, from a certain point of view i think it's safe to say that that style of storytelling is flopping <laughs> what about you nate it makes me think that when they were putting the idea together for this book and putting out the premise and i, I imagine the author showing up at lucasfilm to actually do a story pitch, or at Disney Lucasfilm Press to do a story pitch. I know that's usually done through email now, but still. It's even done through email back when I did the thing for Tales back in 04. But just just go with me here on the analogy. I imagine him showing up to do this story pitch and being like, Okay, guys, I got a story pitch for you. Let's set the mood. And maybe dimming the lights, maybe turning on a projector, and then handing around some LSD <laughs> to make sure that everybody was in the right frame of mind to accept 
some of the ideas being put forward within the book. It is basically the story of, it's a bunch of characters we do not know, do not care about, who are traveling on a cruise ship, like not cruise ship, but a as crew on a ship, a freighter, going to Canto Bight, because everything's going to Canto Bight now. And in the process to sort of keep themselves entertained or take their mind off of their troubles as they're sloshing their way through a bilge full of fecal matter and other things, uh, I kid you not, about the last third of the book is spent, you know, with them kind of making their way through some poo and basically trying to tell each other stories that they've heard about Luke Skywalker. And the first one turns out to be pretty interesting. It's kind of like a parody, basically, or, or sort of a... What if Star Wars clashed with fake news? Fake news. Because it's telling, like, you know, this is what I think the truth was of the events of A New Hope. These guys weren't real. It was all propaganda after the fact, and here's how they did it. And, oh, wait, I've seen some videos of Alderaan or the Death Star, I forget which, blowing up where there wasn't a ring of energy coming out of it like a shockwave. And then I've seen ones where it does. (laughs) It was one event. It can't happen both ways, right, as a tip of the hat to, you know, the difference in the special editions and everything. And it's really kind of a weird story. You know, it's just odd, but it's kind of entertaining in its oddness. Then we get to find out uh, where Luke went during his journey to find Jedi knowledge where he managed to learn how to do the weird spear fishing thing that he does in Last Jedi. Okay, that's not too bad of a tale by itself. But you've also got Luke going and rescuing a kidnapped R2-D2 while dressed as a droid. We have Luke and a researcher being caught accidentally inside the belly of a space slug in their space suits, basically. Which are kind of like, yeah, odd little stories like, wait, what? Um, but the, the, the piece de resistance is the idea that there's a flea. A sentient flea, basically. It's from the same planet as the Kowakian monkey lizards, right? And lives on them, basically. And this flea was really the source of the comedic genius of one salacious B. Crumb. And while the events were happening in Return of the Jedi at Jabba's palace, he manages to leap from Salacious Crumb onto Leia and have conversations with her while sitting on her nose. Until eventually, he sees Luke Skywalker, who is completely and utterly inept in everything he's doing to try to rescue Han. So the flea jumps onto Luke and is speaking into his ear, and Luke thinks it's the Force, and the only way Luke got out of any of that was because of the flea's good advice. Oh, for f- I want to drop an f bomb sake. <laughs> it's it's and, and it would be different if these were short, cute little stories that you just zip on through. But this is a four hundred plus page book of this crap. <laughs> it is by no means a read that you should try unless you're just interested in Star Wars tel- storytelling that is weird, mostly meaningless. And Star Wars stories that you're going to sit back and wonder, wow, did I really just read that? <laughs> it's it's just, it's, I, I don't know, I don't know. It reminds me of Tales from a Galaxy Far, Far Away Aliens. It reminds me of some of the worst of the, the little side short stories that we got, say, back in the Legends continuity. The Dantooine book. <laughs> No, the Dan- no, 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 no. I would read the Dan to- the, the ruins of Dantooine. I would read that three or four times, <laughs> review it, discuss it, memorize passages from it to perform 
before I would read this book again. <laughs> so you're saying, you're basically saying Legends of Luke Skywalker, Page Turner, it was not. <laughs> yes, Page Turner, it was. Well, no, 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 I take it back. I was turning the pages constantly because I was constantly checking to see when this horrible section would end and the next one would begin, hoping the next one would be better. And oh. then I got to the Flea story and I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I will continue reading, but I have zero hope for what's left of this book. I get they were trying to do something weird, but apparently the legends of Luke Skywalker, the reason why I guess Ray is like, like, I thought he was a myth, right? Is not because time has passed, but because there are all kinds of people out there dropping drugs and then telling stories about Luke that just confuse the heck out of other people later who try to understand the stories without being on drugs. Like, oh. I wonder if I missed something, because they sent me a review copy, and I didn't review it, because I don't know how to review a book like this <laughs> and have a much positive to say, and I don't want to do a review that just rips the living hell out of it. Certainly, we'll talk about it on the show, but how do you do that? You know, I just, yeah. you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But I'm wondering if when they sent this, if when I opened up the box, something fell out of it and my LSD got missing. <laughs> because if that's what happened, then I didn't get the experience I was supposed to get out of reading the book. And I apologize for talking about how ungodly awful it was. But yeah, Legends of Luke Skywalker don't just... Don't just skip it. When you see it in the stores, warn everybody around you to skip it. <laughs> and you'll be okay. You'll be doing a service to fellow fans. It has been a long time since I felt this way about a book in Star Wars. The Chewbacca miniseries for Marvel? Yeah. But a book? Surely not. Not even Phasma. I would read Phasma again before I read this book again. <laughs> I would read Phasma and do a research paper on it. <laughs> is this is this worth going and, and rereading Chuck Wendig's entire trilogy nine times? <laughs> nine times? Maybe? I just... Uh, but it's okay. It's okay. All I need to do, though, if, if there are some out there who really like the book and are finding my scathing comments, rubbing them the wrong way, if they're unhappy with my opinion being so divergent from theirs, all I can say is, don't worry, it's okay. The flea made me say it. <laughs> Oh, now I wonder if Riley even sent it. Maybe he just tossed it in the trash himself. I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't even need to light the freaking trash can on fire. It would start it itself. Anyway, okay, so getting out of Lucasfilm, Disney Lucasfilm Press, at least with this size of books, we have quite a few young reader books of note for this year. We have some comedic and parody books for this year and some reference style works. So instead of necessarily going them bit by bit, maybe we'll go through here's what they all were and maybe talk about some of the highlights, perhaps? Yeah, same with the uh, reprint paperbacks of Lost Stars and Ahsoka. We just blaze through this stuff. <laughs> so for the young reader books of note, and there are always little kids books, you know, like golden books type stuff that we don't wind up talking about. We had uh, Join the Resistance, start with Mattis Bands as the main character. And then we had the second book in that series, Escape from Vodran. We had Darth Vader Sith Lord, which is one of those little biography type books, the little thin backstories. They, they, yeah, they have the backstories title. Yeah, yeah. I, when I first saw that one, I was confused. And then I, I looked it up and I was like, oh, backstory. Okay. Yeah, and that was actually one. It was kind of cool because when I went to Celebration and got uh, Jason Fry to sign my copy of it, it was the first time he'd ever signed a copy of that specific book, which was oh, kind of cool. Oh, sick. That's cool. That's cool. Let's see, and I'll circle back and get some opinions on, like, Join the Resistance in a minute. But then we have uh, Adventures in Wild Space, which have been going on for a while. It started in the UK, eventually started being reprinted in the US. So in both the UK and US, this year saw the book The Cold. 
And then in the UK, the series finished out uh, with the book The Rescue. Uh, but then the U.S. also saw The Steel, reprinted here as The Heist, and The Dark, reprinted here as The Darkness, both this year. But those were U.K. books back in 2016. So Adventures in Wild Space is almost done in the U.S. It is done in the U.K. now. We had the Rogue One Junior novelization come out. We had Guardians of the Wills. We had Bomber Command and Cobalt Squadron, both tying into Last Jedi. BB-8 on the run. Chewie and the Porgs. New versions of kids' adaptations of A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi in the UK to go along with their junior novelization of The Force Awakens that had some alterations to those books. So the text was mostly like the last time we saw that printing, but there have been some tweaks to remove some Legends references and tie it better into canon. And then, of course, with the launch of the Forces of Destiny cartoon series... We also had kids' books based on those, basically adapting episodes of the show, Daring Adventures Volumes 1 and 2, and then Tales of Hope and Courage. I've got a couple of these I'll want to talk about briefly, but uh, Mark, did any of these stand out? Any of these worth delving into? Well, I do have Join the Resistance, and I like that one. I haven't got Escape from Vodran, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually... I got high hopes for this series. I hope it turns out to be... <laughs> I know, I know, I'm just you sad. It's probably, it's probably getting worse you by the second book. poor... Right? Poor man. Let me put it this way. So, Join the Resistance itself, not bad. Kind of difficult trying to figure out exactly when it's going to take place in relation to The Force Awakens, but otherwise, not bad. Escape from Vodran, also not bad. The main story is not bad at all. But it introduces a continuity issue, and it introduces Phantom Menace-level humor into the series. Uh, When we learn that Kare-kun and Snap Wexley got secretly married, or I guess not secretly, but like... Just, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, but they got married, without us realizing it, at the Dakar base, seemingly before we see them splitting up and not yet married already in the Poe Dameron comic. So there's a contradiction already going on between those. But apparently their wedding was overseen by the kids of J-Squad. And in giving, in, in whatever it was that they made as the food to cater the wedding, gave everyone in really bad flatulence. So it was basically the incredible farting wedding. Oh, God. And they spend a couple pages describing this incredible farting wedding in Escape from Vaudrin. You remove those couple of pages, <laughs> and I would have very little problem with the book. But now, not only is there a continuity error, it's a continuity error based on the incredible farting wedding, which is just, as the president might put it, sad. Very sad. <laughs> Well played. Uh, the Wild Space ones, I haven't got these yet. You know, they, they're just now coming over to the U.S., but I still haven't seen any of them even on the shelves. What I find interesting, though, is that they changed the names. Like, I am I wrong? But do they speak a different English over in the U.K.? Like, I didn't think that Heist and Steel were just so different that we couldn't use the same word for both. Like, I, I don't know, man. Dark, that we have to call it Darkness over here? Like, I, I don't understand why we have to change the titles. That confuses me. But otherwise, no, not not so bad. The Rogue One Junior novelization, I think there was some stuff added. That one, I, again, that one I don't have either. But I like the fact that when they add little things to things, Bomber Command, Cobalt Squadron, I got both of those for Christmas. I think these ones, what's exciting about these is that they give you that insight. So the first 10 to 15 minutes of The Last Jedi has more emotional impact. Uh, I did watch it for my second time. I found myself that scene and stuff, everything going on in that moment. These books definitely made that more emotionally impactful. So I definitely got a kick out of that. 
when it comes to BB-8 on the run, I did get a uh, review copy of this one. I actually read it with my daughter, Jaina. Um, you know, we had, we had kind of dogged on it for the price, but someone came back and talked about the fact that how much illustrators get paid and stuff. And I was like, okay, I guess that kind of makes more sense. Uh, you know, it's definitely a kid book. Same with Chewie and the Porgs. Uh, the thing about the new version of the kid at the kids adaptations that has me excited. You know, you mentioned the fact that there's some alterations to fit in with the new story group canon stuff. One of the things that's always bothered me back in legends, even is the novelization for empire strikes back. We've got a blue Yoda and they, you know, they reprint the hell out of that book. And every time I open it up, I go straight to that blue Yoda. Damn it. Blue Yoda. Damn it. Blue Yoda. Damn it. This is like the damn escape pod in the new hope. Like, so I'm hoping they went back and they fixed those kind of things because those things really just, <laughs> they get under my skin like a thorn underneath my fingernail. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of excited for that. And at the same time, like if I open it up and I see one more blue Yoda, I'm going to lose it. So uh, he better be a force ghost or a hologram. That's all I'm saying. Or maybe he's just sad. He's a blue Yoda. A blue Yoda he is. <laughs> Let's see. So looking at these, uh, I guess I already got my opinion in there on uh, Join the Resistance. Uh, Adventures <laughs> in Wild Space, I've actually enjoyed that series. It gets better as it goes along. It feels like there's more direction to it as you get to the latter books in it, which was pretty cool. Um, I'm glad that they gave it a real defined ending point. So I'm excited to see that ending point finally come to the U.S. later this year in 2018. Guardians of the Wills, good characterization on Baze and Chirrut, though it would be nice to kind of know a little bit better when it takes place. Um, Cobalt Squadron, I haven't read yet. That's actually what I just started getting into last night, but I've only read maybe a page into it. Bomber Command is another one of those ones from Studio Fun, and it's basically a journal from Paige Tico, who wrote it while they were on the way aboard the Ninka Holdo ship to Dakar, after the Battle of Starkiller Base has happened, and they've heard all about what has happened at the battle because they were gone on a different battle, they come back and are going to start aiding in the evacuation. The idea is that it eventually gets transmitted to Rose, so Rose has a copy of this. And it gives some interesting new insights to the characters, like, for instance, the uh, the baffle thing, the uh, so-called stealth ability of the ships to avoid being detected that we see in The Last Jedi. Turns out that that was Rose's idea. She came up with it for a particular mission that they were on to, to basically make it so the bombers couldn't easily be spotted and tracked uh, when they were delivering uh, supplies instead of bombs. And it carries over into the film. So it's got some interesting background stuff. I imagine Cobalt Squadron will probably be a little bit heavier in terms of backstory for those characters, for the Tico sisters. BB-8 on the run and Chewie and the Porgs, definitely kids' books, not usually my thing, although I find it hilarious that Chewie and the Porgs, when you get to the night where it's dark, Luke sneaks aboard the Millennium Falcon, and Chewie is out there about to eat a roasted Porg. All that it has is him shown from behind with no roasted porg shown, presumably covered by his body. And it says, Wookiee fun fact number 17. Wookiees are always hungry, but poor Chewbacca has nothing to eat. And then it goes into the next day where he's hunting for food. So in Chewie and the Porgs, they bypass the probably the most important part, which is, he was going to eat one of us. So that's kind of weird, but I guess you wouldn't want to put that in the children's story, even though they're going to see it in the movie, but whatever. Uh, the new versions of adaptations, I thought it's kind of cool that they're doing that. It'd be nice for them to do that to the uh, adult novels as well. And then the Forces of Destiny stuff, they're just adaptations of episodes. But I will say that the way that... So Daring Adventures 1 and 2 have different interludes with Maz talking. 
And then Tales of Hope and Courage is another studio fun thing where it's all being recounted by Maz like she's telling a story to somebody. And the way that certain aspects of the purpose of telling these stories is worded in those books make me more accepting of the premise of Forces of Destiny in general and give me a better opinion of the Forces of Destiny series. Because my initial thought was, you know, they're doing things that mean nothing. How is this making them supposedly Forces of Destiny, etc., etc.? And it's more about the character traits that they show and stuff like that that is pointed out in detail by Maz in those stories. So... If you're having trouble getting into Forces of Destiny, you think it's kind of crappy. It's not going to raise the standard all that much on Forces of Destiny, but you'll probably get a more positive feeling towards it if you pick up Tales of Hope and Courage. Maybe Daring Adventures 1 and 2, but definitely Hope uh, Tales of Hope and Courage. That then gets us into the comedic and parody books, which are Jedi Academy, The Force Oversleeps, 99 Stormtroopers Join the Empire, and The Force Doth Awaken. I've only checked out one of these three. Mark, have you checked out any of them? I have only checked out the uh, Jedi Academy, The Force Oversleeps. That's mainly because my son, he really gets a kick out of that series. So, yeah, no, not much for me on these ones. Yeah, Force Doth Awaken is the one that I checked out, and it's basically what you would expect, right? It's a Shakespearean version of The Force Awakens. So it's done in iambic pentameter. It's done with a Shakespearean style to it. It's done with some turns of phrase that are meant to evoke certain phrases uh, and... uh soliloquies and whatnot that we see back in actual works of Shakespeare. I will say that once they got away from A New Hope, we see more and more of it being Shakespearean style and less and less just trying to shoehorn Star Wars phrases into existing Shakespeare soliloquies, which I think is a better approach to take, the one that they're doing after A New Hope. One thing actually I thought was pretty cool about this, though, and I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole thing, is that just like the classic trilogy or the original trilogy... This one got an audiobook version, an audio-dramatized version of it, so you can listen to it, which is always my preferred way of taking in Shakespeare, either listening or watching, not reading, because you get the subtle nuances of the way that lines are supposed to be delivered. Um, they never did that for any of the prequel Shakespearean versions, but they did go back and do it for The Force Awakens, and hopefully they'll do that eventually for The Last Jedi as well. Then we've got reference-style works, for lack of a better term. And there were quite a few of these, all kind of varying in style. We had the Star Wars Visual Encyclopedia. We had the Topps Classics Sticker Book, which uh, is something that uh, was pointed out to me as kind of a big deal, I guess, because of classic Topps stickers being a collectible thing and this being able to be used as a guide for that, I guess. Uh, I don't know much about the book at all. We had On the Front Lines. We had Star Wars Made Easy, Star Wars Coding Projects, Ultimate Lego Star Wars, The Rebel Files, The Last Jedi's Incredible Cross-Sections, The Last Jedi's Visual Dictionary, Stormtroopers Beyond the Armor, which is a non-fiction thing about the development and making of Stormtroopers in the films, not an in-universe thing, and then Absolutely Everything You Need to Know, Updated and Expanded. Any thoughts on any of these as we wrap up sort of the canonical stuff or the reference stuff that mostly goes with canon? Well, on the front line, sounds interesting, but of course, this being a reference style book, it's probably not as exciting as I think it should be. For me, though, Rebel Files was one that jumps out. Like, I hope to eventually get the vault edition of this. I have all the Legends vault edition stuff, this being the first canon vault. Uh, so it, it looks pretty cool. Like, the book itself looks like it delivers everything the last ones did. Uh, when it comes to The Last Jedi, the visual dictionary, I only have one gripe. 
and I think my gripe is with all the visual dictionaries right now and the journey to premise. You shouldn't be finding out all these incredible little details and tidbits in the visual dictionary and not in the books and comics that are leading up to the films. The fact that we find out all the information we do about Snoke comes from this and nowhere else. I find that a complete dropping of the ball on the story groups part. I don't, I, I can't throw this at Marvel. I can't throw this at Del Rey. I mean, who's telling them not to talk about this stuff? Because like, they're saving it for this. Like, uh, to me, like, I, I, I think is the one thing that drives me nuts that to get those kind of tidbits, you got to get the visual dictionary. That's to me, that's not what a visual dictionary should be used for. So yeah, that's, that's my only complaint there, I guess. <laughs> I picked up most of these. The Star Wars Visual Encyclopedia doesn't really give us a whole lot of new information or anything, but it's a nice reference work to have. As I said, didn't pick up the Topps Classic Sticker Book. Don't really know a whole lot about it. I'm not big into that side of the collecting. On the Front Lines was all right. You had sort of a breakdown of the different major battles and the different technology involved and some first-hand accounts, quote-unquote, relating to them. So that was kind of a cool book. Didn't give us a lot of new information, but an interesting way of looking at Star Wars Warfare. Star Wars Made Easy. I actually think that was a really good book. If you're trying to get someone, especially a someone who's maybe a... a maybe a teenager, maybe a middle schooler into Star Wars for the first time because it's a nice guide that helps answer commonly asked questions about Star Wars while guiding people into the saga itself and what's up with the different films, the different TV series. It doesn't really go beyond that, but it's good at just sort of giving a primer to those who are wanting to get into Star Wars now that the new films are out. Uh, some people said, well, there it is again. They're dumbing down Star Wars. Well, it's... That's not dumbing it down in a story or something. This is a guide specifically for new people trying to get into Star Wars. It's not made for those who have already been in it for a while. Chill out. Star Wars coding projects. I'm actually interested in trying to learn a little bit of coding myself. So I've got that one. I haven't actually tried to do anything with it yet. Um, but it's there. It's ready for me to check out soon. Ultimate Lego Star Wars is a really, really awesome, gigantic guide to all the different Star Wars Legos that they have put out since the beginning. Lots of cool details about the different types of characters, because we've had, like, the character encyclopedia and stuff like that for Lego Star Wars, but that was usually focusing on individual characters and how the minifigures have changed, not necessarily the sets that go with them. And this is a book that hits everything. But in hitting everything, it can't go into detail on Every minute thing, because it's already a gigantic book just with what they're able to cover now. Um, if you're into Lego Star Wars stuff, that's a good one to pick up. Rebel Files, very cool. The way they released this was asinine, but the book itself is cool. Um, I'm still in the process of going through it. It's got the little artifacts that go with it. It's got the cool little special case that goes with it. But its release kept getting pushed back and pushed back, and we were being told, no, the only way you're going to be able to get the deluxe edition is to be able to buy it through the company itself and on their website. Is there going to be an Amazon pre-order? Is there not? Their website wouldn't be up for pre-order, and there's a lot of consternation about it until finally, turns out it did pop up on Amazon, but it's popping up sold by that company as opposed to being sold by Amazon per se, just using Amazon as an outlet, one of the ways to buy it. So unlike the other vault editions of Star Wars books like this in the past, you don't get that nice, sweet, sweet Amazon discount on it. It is still full price for everybody. It's a cool book, but I imagine that this will be a lot harder to find in the future than something like the Jedi Path was, because those were hyped up, easy to find. Rebel Files got almost no hype whatsoever and was a pain in the butt to get your hands on it first. Last Jedi books, incredible cross-sections, nice look at the new technology from the film, 
by the same team that did the one for The Force Awakens. And then uh, Last Jedi Visual Dictionary. I love the Visual Dictionaries, but I hate them. For the same reason Mark does. I mean, I love the fact that they give all kinds of extra details about the film. But I, it also bothers me that a lot of the details we get aren't found in the film itself. Sometimes even important ones. And aren't found in the other books and comics leading up to it, tying into it, that are supposed to be part of leading up to it. Maybe some of those things will be mentioned in the novelization. But I take something like The Last Jedi. There are things people complained about about The Last Jedi on and on and on online that are actually answered in the Visual Dictionary. Mm-hmm. But that's not even really much of an answer to it, because you can say, well, actually, you know, for instance, how are they dropping bombs? Because there's no gravity in space, right? Well, it's these mag rail things, and it's using magnetic propulsion to actually slide them down. It, it's not actually that they're falling, falling. They're getting some measure of propulsion. It's right there in the Visual Dictionary uh, or in the Incredible Cross sections. But even if you provide that answer, the response is, and to some degree rightly so, I shouldn't have to read a guidebook to understand what's happening in the movie. Now, granted, you don't have to understand why the bombs are falling down to see them falling down and get what happens in the movie, but it does hurt the suspension of disbelief sometimes. And then you have things like, well, wait a second, so how did Luke actually find, you know, the first Jedi Temple? How did he get there? That was such a big part of The Force Awakens, we figured we'd eventually get an answer to that somewhere in a movie, and it'd be a big deal thing. And no, apparently he followed, like, the the trail of the seedlings and how they spread for the Force trees on Ach 2 or something, which we get information on in the visual dictionary. So they're great for extra background. And I love how they add more layers to the film. Sometimes with information we didn't need to know to enjoy the film, but it's just cool to have like prime Jedi. What's a prime Jedi. Yeah. What's a prime Jedi. Exactly. That you'll run into things like that where you're just like, well, wait a second. Wait, why wasn't this somewhere within the film? Why couldn't they have cut out this thing that was over long or this scene that wasn't really as needed to have even a sentence added about this. And is it just because they saw it in the script and realized, hmm, people are going to bitch about that. Tell you what, let's come up with a reason for it by press time on the book. You go ahead and make the movie the way you want. I don't know. I, I'd much rather see it in another form. But the visual dictionaries are always a treat for me every time there's a new film. I really dig those. Or the visual guides, visual dictionaries, always very cool to check out. Stormtroopers Beyond the Armor, I got. I haven't read all the way through, but it's extremely extensive. So those who are into the trooper stuff or the costuming with the Stormtroopers 501st kind of stuff, I think you'll definitely dig that. Absolutely everything updated and expanded. Solid. I mean, it's one of those ones where it's hard to really say much beyond what's already been said about it. There were some issues before with it having some legend stuff in it. That seems to mostly have been worked out so that now it's predominantly canon stuff. They added and tweaked a few things here and there. It's one of those ones where it's an incremental update. So whether you get it or not, it's going to completely depend on whether you feel like you need it now and didn't need it then. Or you need an updated copy of something you already bought to give us new information. I find that that's a little bit more something I can justify when it comes to something like Star Wars year by year, or hopefully what people will be able to justify with a saga on home video eventually, where there's a clear delineation of time, and then it's covering a new time period specifically in that updated, expanded edition, as opposed to it just being sort of the whole thing gets updated and tweaked, where it's kind of hard to see where the old one ends and the new stuff begins. I think that's... It's tricky. Like, I had to go through to, you know, for the timeline, I was going through and comparing every single blurb of text on every single page to make sure I found all the new stuff to make sure it wasn't new stuff that needed to go on the timeline. I'm not sure if I would have liked it more if they'd had a separate section in the back of just new updated stuff. People probably would have griped about it not being integrated. Why am I paying this money for just a few new pages? 
But in essence, it's still only a few new pages of material. It's just that now it's spread out everywhere. But the reference style works are always things I find kind of cool. They're always a little pricey, but I tend to dig them because it always gives us another glimpse into the, the galaxy far, far away. Though, for that matter, I do really still miss the old Essential Guide product line. Don't know that we're ever going to see that type of guide ever again. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, we're almost to the point of wrap up. Uh, before we get to our top three of 2017 picks, we do have one last thing to talk about. It isn't dead, folks. Legends has once again stayed the death. It's still alive. It's still alive and kicking. Yes, you heard me right. Legends is still kicking. We got two short stories this year, both of which come from the Bioware, the Old Republic video game. Uh, the first one is Trading Scars. It's a short story written by Sam Walshlager. I'm probably butchering your name, uh, but I apologize. Uh, it was published and developed for the blog for the Star Wars The Old Republic. It was published on August 17th, 2017. It serves as a prelude to the Flashpoint Crisis on Umbara. The other one is Chasing Capero. It is a short story written by Charles Boyd and published in the development blog of Star Wars The Old Republic on November 16th, 2017. It also serves as a prelude, this one to the Flashpoint, A Traitor Among the Sith. So for those of you out there that have felt like, well, you know, Legends has been dead since 2014, you've been wrong. BioWare has grabbed the wheel, they've kept the ship going, and yeah, unfortunately, it is only online short stories, but when other people will not provide... Someone has, you know, we, I, I've been on a lot of different groups and stuff on Facebook and stuff. And well, why isn't the movement failing? Why is this not working? You know, one of the biggest things I notice is the fact that when these stories come out, there is not a peep from legends fans. You know, we claim to be fans of legends. And yet when this stuff's out there, we are not giving it the support. It is due. It has kept legends alive into 2018. And for that, I tip my hat to it. As do I. I haven't read them, and God only knows when I will, because boy, I'm behind on summarizing <laughs> the Old Republic stuff for the timeline. I need to watch, basically, gameplay videos of everything since the original core game, starting with Rise of the Hut Cartel, and get that on there. So I'll eventually read these stories, but let's see, it's 2018 now, it's the beginning of January, so say February, March, April, we're probably looking at about 2025, eventually I will <laughs> probably get to it. That'll probably be when they actually start to put out Legends books again. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. And then they'll still be mostly forgotten because people will be saying, hey, it's the first new Legends story since 2014. No, it's not. Stop it. <laughs> All right. So I guess we're heading into our top three. And uh, as you uh, have given this a, probably a little bit more thought than I have initially, but I do have three in mind. What are your top three? All right. So, you know, this was hard because all three of these were fighting for my first place pick. So I thought about it really hard. And so for me, my number one pick of 2017 goes to the Disney press and Rebel Rising. And for that, it is because of the fact of the interconnectivity. It delivered the one aspect that I have absolutely loved about Legends and Star Wars for my fandom in the way that it's all connected. Uh, it, it definitely delivered that on so many levels. I absolutely fell in love with the book my next book is thrawn and you know that one it's because it's a character from legends it's finally made his canon jump over uh it's the reintroduction of timothy zahn so you know all these great hallmarks this is a great highlight and it was a great story I like the fact we had the, uh, was it Mist Encounter was reinterpreted as one of the chapters in here. I thought that was brilliant. Uh, I love the way that the story played out. I'm looking forward to the sequel. I love the fact that Thrawn bumped into, spoiler warning, 
Darth Vader at some point, or was it Anakin Skywalker at some point? Either way, he's bumped into both of them, and I think that's pretty cool. Uh, I look forward to the sequel. And of course, my third one is Inferno Squad. I felt that one was equally a solid book. I love the way that it tied into the game and stuff. I think that Thrawn only went out on nostalgia. <laughs> so for me, those are my top threes of 2017. And this will be easy. My top three are the exact same ones, except that I would reverse slots two and three. So Rebel Rising for me, number one. Uh, number two for me then would be Inferno Squad, uh, mainly because I like the moral ambiguity and the moral questions that are asked in both of those. And then Thrawn after that. Uh, I like the machinations of sort of the Sherlock Holmesian take on Thrawn that is given there. I just feel like Inferno Squad did a little bit more for me, especially given the fact that I've been pretty big on the Battlefront 2 uh, campaign in the new game. So, yeah, that was that was incredibly easy. So, uh, with all the dis... Yeah, and I, I would say all the disagreements. I don't think we actually had many disagreements. With all the disagreements we will probably find with people listening, I think we were pretty much in sync throughout this one, which is not necessarily always the case. Um... That is good. That is good, I suppose. Even the same top three, albeit in a different order. So take it to the bank. See, and, and even with your rationalization, I mean, mine may shift if I play Battlefront 2 a little bit more. I'm only, I'm almost off Endor. I mean, I haven't even got that far. Like, I didn't realize I was playing it on Specialist. I couldn't figure out why I kept dying with one hit. I'm like, God, God, what the hell? This game is so hard. My son's like, what's your difficulty setting at? I'm like, wait, I could change the setting? <laughs> I felt so stupid. Like, I should have known this. I'm not new to gaming. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. We always encourage you to check all the other podcasts out over there at our network. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any comments about Star Wars, Legends, or anything else, or you just want to comment about a past episode, just fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of Audible to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Because Audible members, they can exchange any book within 12 months, that's one year, with no questions asked. That's right, no questions asked. They don't care if your dog peed on it, it's a digital book. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the subject of the next groundbreaking miniseries from Marvel Comics will be that freaking flea. Ooh, ooh. What are the odds that they're going to give... Oh, man, I don't even want to say it out loud. What are the odds they're going to give Wendig a nine-book series? Oh, it hurt just thinking about it. 
I'm not sure if they would do that. Bad idea. Oh my god, that took me a second. <laughs> well played. Yeah, that's right. Sentence fragments for the win. Or the terrible Pyrrhic victory.